Hello, this interview was actually done as a video, so if you want to see the pictures, make sure you head along to the Tom's Talk Time Facebook page, click on the videos tab and take a look. We did it in a television studio and it was so much fun, but I thought I'd use the audio from the clip as a podcast episode. Sabrina Hahn is a fantastic gardener. She's a WA expert and she's lived a pretty interesting life. Hope you enjoy the episode and remember if you have a suggestion for someone you'd like to see me interview, make sure you get in touch. Here's Sabrina. Hi, I'm Sabrina Hahn. From gardening to radio, Sabrina Hahn has done it all. A familiar face and voice here in WA, she has shared her knowledge and passion for gardening across Western Australia for more than three decades. I grew up in the country and um, was very lucky enough to be allowed to be completely feral till I was about eight. Sabrina's a master gardener, a horticultural professional and a published author. She's on a mission to help us create sustainable gardens that make our cities more livable. Her aim is to help people understand the importance of physical and mental well-being through gardening and she's here with me to share her stories and tell us all about it. Sabrina, welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. It's lovely to be here in your lounge room. I have to say, when I said that I was doing this, so many people sent me messages saying, oh, I love Sabrina and my grandma ask Sabrina questions all the time and I can't <laughs> wait to watch. What's it like to be so well respected? Ah, well, um, it's fun and it's lovely. Like it's really, it's really a wonderful thing to be in so many people's homes. And the beautiful thing about the medium of radio is that they get to know your personality because it's all, it's all live. You can't, you can't edit that and re-say something and sometimes I do get into trouble for some of the things that do fall out of my mouth. But I guess that's why you have a special relationship with listeners and they feel that they know you and that's a really, that's a great privilege. It is and as I mentioned we're going to hear from people a little bit later who I've uh, chosen their questions. But I want to go right back to the start. You've lived in all sorts of regional mm. areas across Australia, but tell me about life growing up. Well, I was really lucky because we grew up in quite isolated places. So I was born in New Guinea and then, um, so there wasn't really, uh, we were in the town of Ley, but we were on the outskirts. And my father worked very closely with all the local Aboriginal people and formed a great relationship with them. And so when we left New Guinea, we went to Northern Queensland and that was even as isolated. Um, we didn't settle into school terribly well. So it was advised that we all left school, the three children, <laughs> me and my two siblings. And so we went out bush with my dad, <laughs> which was marvelous. So we mixed with Aboriginal people a lot in the early years and uh, didn't go to school much. <laughs> and um, so basically we sort of had a different kind of education. But my father was an incredible bushman. So what we didn't learn in school, we actually learnt 
from nature, being in nature and working very closely, well we weren't working, but playing with people very closely that were, you know, had that very tight link to country. And it's a lot of learning through doing, isn't it? it that sort of Definitely, stuff. Definitely, yeah. But I think that's where my love of nature came from, from that side of things. And because we lived in remote areas and my mother was, and my grandmother were gun gardeners, just amazing gardeners. So mum always grew all our food because we, where we lived, you couldn't go to a shop and buy it. So you, if you didn't grow it, you didn't eat it. And then there was always the trade. So she'd trade vegetables for a pig or, you know, a cow or dad would go and get a kangaroo or, sorry for animal lovers, um, <laughs> but we ate every part of it. Uh, so I had that combination of the gardening skills but also the love of the bush and understanding how everything worked together. So what was the moment then when you realised that I might be able to make a career out of doing this? It's not just a passion. You're going to dedicate I, your life to it. Well, it sort of happened slowly through osmosis, I think. <laughs> I had a crack at other stuff. Um, I went to university uh, in New England and decided I'd be a philosopher. Um, I lasted, I think, five months and uh, then went travelling. So I think it was once I settled down, which took many years, and thought, what do I want to do? And I was already a, a very good gardener and loved it, just, just never wanted to come inside. My house cleaning skills are appalling. Um, so by the time I was probably 22, I decided I didn't want to do anything else. So that was... And I loved being outdoors. I tried a couple of times to have jobs that were inside a building and it just didn't work for me really. It's not the same. Uh, time <laughs> for our first question now though. It comes from Brooke. Let's take a look. Hi Sabrina. What's the best way to um, manage weeds and garden beds please? Thank you. Ah, um, these things, observance. People, when they see weeds, want to go and rip them out. But in actual fact, the root system of the weed is quite good to have because there's all sorts of microscopic fungi attached to it. So you have to keep cutting them down or when you pull them up, you leave them on the ground and that goes back. So you've got to get weeds before they seed because then you've got weeds for the next 20 years. So you walk around your garden every morning with a cup of tea or coffee um, and you just pull the weeds that you see. There you go. It's That's pretty great. simple. There yeah. you go, Brooke. Uh, now, I want to move on to when you were nominated for Australian oh. of the Year. I mean, I can't even imagine what that must have been like to get the phone call to say you were nominated. What was it like? Oh, it was such a thrill. And, you know, you feel so honoured but so unworthy at the same time because people do the most extraordinary things and it was to do with the work that I do up in remote Aboriginal communities up in the Kimberley, setting up vegetable gardens so the kids have got access to fresh fruit and veggies and um, I go out with the 
uh, elder women and we collect bush tucker and bush medicine plants, propagate them in the town so that they've got access to them. So I'd been doing that for about 10 years and um, then I got nominated. So I was so absolutely thrilled and um, felt so honoured by that but sort of unworthy really compared to what other people do. But I guess from the early years being with Aboriginal people, I have, I, I feel like I have a real connection to them. So. And their culture, I mean, obviously the, the elders are very much about the land and that sort of thing. I personally think we could learn a lot from that culture. What do you think the divide is or, or what is it like inside? What do they say? about that divide that is clearly still there? I think there's a lot of mistrust for, for Aboriginal people because in those communities, how it used to work was people would come in and throw you know half a million dollars at a project, whether they wanted that or not, and that doesn't work. You have to have a buy-in and it has to be something that has some relation to them that they can see that it gives their children better opportunities. So, and that's the thing about the garden, like everyone could see that it made the children healthier, they had a, um, you know, a bigger selection of food to choose from and they don't end up with diabetes and, and all the other problems there. So, and it, the project was great because if the, it, it was handed over to them, so essentially they had to run it and that so I think for um, non-Aboriginal people, they, they don't understand that deep connection Aboriginal people still have with, with the land. And we are now just learning about land management through Aboriginal people. You know, we, we do have six seasons. We don't have the English four seasons. It doesn't work here. Um, and just management of fire and all, all that sort of thing. We are now learning a lot from Aboriginal people, but it is, we have to gain their trust, basically. We do, and I would say it will take probably quite a, quite a while. Uh, time for another question now, though. This one comes from Gloria. Hi, Sabrina. I need your help. How do I get rid of these bloody little spiders that keep spinning webs on every single pot plant that I have? Thank you very much. Look forward to your reply. This is Gloria. Ah, oh, poor Gloria. Do you know what, Gloria? You are so lucky to have spiders. Because the spiders are there because there's either scale or aphids or mealybug, which is even worse. So the spiders are there eating the pests. So you actually don't oh, So it's want, a good thing. It's a great thing. You don't ever want to get rid of spiders from, well, redbacks and tarantulas mm. and um, white-tailed spiders. Uh, they're perhaps not the sort of spiders you want. But those little garden spiders eat all the pests. So what you could do is perhaps put glitter on them so that they look prettier, <laughs> the webbing. <laughs> That might be an idea. I reckon that's a pretty good idea. Now, Sabrina, when I was a kid, my parents had the most beautiful garden. We grew a lot of our own veggies and tomato plants that I had to go out and water every day. And I had a cubby house. And it was sort of this really natural area that I could mm. just run a muck in. 
I don't think it's happening so much anymore. Kids are obviously spending a lot of time inside, mm. but also I suppose houses and things are changing and, and things are becoming smaller or, or we're lifting up, um, living in higher areas. Mm. What can parents do though to try and bring their kids back into getting an interest in the garden? I know it so saddens me, Tom, that kids don't have that access to a, to a big backyard. But that's part of population explosion and we have to accept that. And higher density housing will be how it's going to go. The main thing is, is that parents take their children to parks, to things like, you know, the Kings Park Nature Escape, so that they do have access. and. Really, in terms of policy, when we do high-rise buildings, we have to make sure that there's green space that's allocated for all those people that live in those buildings so that they have access to green space, so the kids can go somewhere and climb a tree and break their arm, perhaps, but, but have... Um, Nature playgrounds are really big now and that's where kids actually learn their own limitations. And there's great programs out, wonderful school programs that where, you know, you can take your kids around a lake at night and they can go hunting for frogs or birds of prey or things like that. So it's really important to actually get them involved in those activities. And even now, like over the next few weeks, there's a thing called BioBlitz a biodiversity blitz where schools can get involved and they take kids out to all these areas to go looking at what's in their backyard. So all the bugs that are there, weeds, pests, diseases, whatever, so that you learn about the environment. Because unless kids have contact with nature and they learn about the environment that they're surrounded with, then they have no respect for nature and they don't care that it's going to disappear. And they don't understand, do they? How no, can they understand no, if they haven't been, right. been shown? I think a lot of it too comes down to just talking. Yeah. You know, talking to, to your kids. I met a kid the other day that was not aware that vegetables came from the ground. They <laughs> thought that we just go to the shops and, yeah. and vegetables are just there. And funnily enough, I was having another conversation with someone about my grandma lives on a farm down in Manjama. And so I used to drive down there all the time as a kid. We'd be looking out the windows, we'd be talking about, you know, the, the paddocks and mm. we'd be stopping for fruit and that sort of thing. Now you drive down and you see kids just with the screens mm. right on the back of, of the car watching movies and that sort of thing. And I, I think that probably has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Well, I have three children that used to fight and scream the entire <laughs> journeys down, you know, from Kalgoorlie for six and a half hours. And I was thinking the other day, I wish I had screens. But in actual fact, I don't really. Because it's that, that whole learning process of having to sort things out. Because what happens, kids just switch off and then there's nothing else that comes into their mind. So when they're outdoors, they're creative, they're challenged. They have to actually share and work together as a team. They have to problem solve. All that stuff that you don't get if you're looking at a screen. And I think more and more parents are now going, okay, screen time is one hour a day and that's it. Get outside. When yeah. we were kids, you were only allowed inside if it rained, hailed, snowed, or it was dark. But we didn't want to go inside because outside was adventure. And I know that block sizes are smaller, but 
take your kids outside and even if you have a tiny area, say we are going to grow some tomatoes or lettuce or something that the kids will eat, not Brussels sprouts, um, get them to do it. Because it's their we, project, their yeah, responsibility. because parents always want to control and help. Yeah. Don't do that. Let them do it. Let them make mistakes. In light of that, the next question comes from my mum, Jeannie. Aww. Let's take a look. Hello, Sabrina. I planted some bougainvillea in my courtyard just over two years ago, and I was wondering if you could give me some tips on how to help the bougainvillea reach its maximum potential. I planted it for privacy in the first instance, but obviously the visual appeal is something that I really love and I'm looking forward to, and I'd love to hear what tips you have. Thank you very much for answering my question. Aww, what a beautiful garden your mum's got. It's gorgeous. I love bougainvilleas because they're really bright and in your face. I quite like bright and in your face because <laughs> I'm a little bit like that myself, really. Um, so. Well, they're flowering well. Um, so the big thing with bougainvilleas is don't overfeed them because you get all the leaf growth, but none of the, the, the flowers are tiny little white things. The colour comes from the bracts. So she needs to use a slow-release fertiliser, no more than twice a year, and prune the hell out of them at the end of summer. Right, oh. so cut them right back. Yeah, yeah. And now by spring, they'll be the same size. But controlling bougainvilleas is the number one big thing. But don't give them too much water and not too much fertiliser. Okay. Now moving on to farming. You've spent a lot of time, as I said, in regional areas, mm. uh, but also down in, in farms. What's happening in modern day farming? What can you see? Well, farms now have to be so much bigger for people to make a living out of them. And um, I think the inputs are so much more. And the big, big, big thing is the weather patterns are now unpredictable. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hard going for a lot of rural, regional places. As we know, the, the drought that's been over in New South Wales and Victoria and Queensland. Um, so what, I think what we're finding is that they're so busy trying to manage much larger properties now and the, the children are not wanting to go into farming. So we're looking at an ageing population that are running the farms where kids are not now necessarily interested in taking over the farms. Um, the use, the chemical use has really increased over the years. So all those inputs, because you're not getting that much more for your grain, but the inputs are costing a lot more. So I think what's happening now is people are looking at other alternatives to all the chemical inputs that are there. And certainly women are concerned about the health of their children, grandchildren, etc., etc., with the amount of farm chemicals that are used. We, we've got science which is helping farmers which with better breeding of different crops. Um, we're certainly breeding some of the best sheep, cattle and, and pigs in the world. But I think farmers are really finding it difficult with, um, with the climate now. You mentioned about sprays and that sort of thing. That I think is happening obviously on farms, but 
even in the home garden, you see everyone drowning their plants in sprays. Mm. What, what's your thoughts on that? I think we need to educate gardeners a lot better. I think we need to educate them about fertiliser use because, you know, we're still, because our soils leach so much, particularly in the city environment, we're looking at all the, um, all the, those nutrients going into our waterways and that's creating massive problems on the Swan and Canning River and the groundwater. So we need to educate gardeners about fertiliser use, about appropriate plants and the fact that for most pests in your garden there is a predator. So before you get out the spray bottle of pesticide, actually observe what's going on. In my garden, which I've been there for 15 years, I have never had to use a spray because I have spiders and lace wings and wasps and all those little predators and many, many different birds. So you really need to be, just because you can buy chemicals, pesticides, insecticides from a hardware store or, or a nursery, doesn't mean to say that it's safe. Exactly. Time for another question now. This one comes from Kevin. Hi Sabrina, Kevin here. I have two five metre palms on a retaining wall covered from ground to top in ivy. Can you advise on how to get rid of the ivy? Ivy is a big one that, <laughs> and it's a big challenge, isn't it, for all sorts of people? Uh, I'd move. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> get out, Kevin. <laughs> out you go. Sorry, Kevin. Okay, so now the problem with ivy, because it has those little aerial roots that stick, you can cut it off at the base and, and paint it with a blackberry killer, but if there's any life above on that little tiny bit, because you can't get up to spray the palm, because you'll kill the palm. Mind you, I don't like palms, so I'd cut the whole thing down entirely, Kevin, and, and take the whole lot away. <laughs> and that solves your problem, and put in a decent tree. <laughs> <laughs> I can be mean. Oh, oh well, there you go, Kevin. <laughs> uh, now, we talked about um, a sense of belonging before and nature. Going back to farming, a lot of farmers feel like they belong to their farm. Yeah. They attach themselves to their to the farm. When things are, you know, they're under so much pressure, as you said, what's that doing to themselves as human beings? Their mental health. There's so much uh, unpredictability in farming. And what I've noticed over the last 15 years is um, depression's becoming a, an enormous issue for farmers, both men and women. Uh, women tend to talk a lot more, but men tend to hold it in. So there's been some really wonderful programs reaching out to, to people in farming communities that, because they're unsure of what their future will be. Like, will they still be farming in, I can tell you now, the farming practices, we will not be able to farm like we are now in 50 years' time because everything has changed so much. And farmers are now looking at the biology of the soil rather than putting stuff on a crop to get it to grow because, of course, all crops grow in soil. So there, there is this slow shift towards looking how, at how we can increase production but lessen the amount of inputs in terms of chemicals on a crop. 
and that's followed by people's concern about what's in our food. So the big debate now is, is nutrient density in our food. That includes the crops that we grow, but also the animals that we eat. So farmers, I think, are under so much pressure to please the market, to actually get the output that's required if they sell to you know, supermarkets, they have to produce so much. So they're under pressure from that. Then they've got the unpredictability of of climate. Then of course we have all the biosecurity stuff which is pest and diseases coming in. So we had, you know, two years ago when the potato tomato psyllid, all the tomato growers in Western Australia basically lost their income from the entire year. So there's so much pressure there. But what was really heartening was to see how everyone rallied for the farmers that were in drought over east and particularly West Australian growers to show that that community is still really strong. So it's not just people on the land that felt for farmers doing it tough, it was actually all the city people as well. So I think what's happening is we are all now gaining an understanding of we're all in it together. So we all have to work together. We do. What can people in the cities, you know, obviously when big events happen, we rally together. Mm. What other things can we do to start helping people in those regional areas? We need to support our growers. We need to find out more about how our food's made. We need to ask about produce. We need to go to butchers and ask them where the meat comes from. We need, there's this real disconnect between city and regional people. And a lot of city people don't realise that in, particularly in small rural towns, it's pretty hard going. So we need to somehow make that conduit, that connect between rural and urban people. And that's, I see that as part of my role as well. So I go to all the you know, ag shows and I'm off to Brunswick on the weekend actually for the Brunswick ag show, um, so that I can bring those stories to urban listeners because without our growers, we're going to be pretty hungry. We may just be eating petunias. <laughs> and I wouldn't, that smell. Wouldn't taste no, that nice. No. Okay, time for another question now. This one comes from Cara, who needs some advice for her courtyard. Hi Sabrina, it's Cara here. I've got a small courtyard and there's not a lot of room to do anything with it. I just wanted to know if you could suggest any plants that are low maintenance that would make it look pretty. Oh, I love courtyards. Do you know, Tom, it's harder to design a smaller space than a bigger space because plant selection is really important. So the big thing about courtyards is select a tree that doesn't overpower the entire courtyard. So something like um, like the lovely little crab apple trees are, are really, and they're pretty and they flower and you get little crab apples and you can pickle them or make jam or just let the rats eat them. Um, because there's rats everywhere uh, and they do like a varied diet. And then select plants that are quite small. You don't want to overcrowd. So go for about six different species and 
So have your canopy, which are small trees, and then come down to no more than 30 centimetres high. So little things like corriers, grasses, dwarf kangaroo paws. It's a fallacy that you can't mix Australian plants with Mediterranean plants and European plants. Bung it all in together. You should see my garden, Tom. <laughs> it's what they call eclectic, but I have everything in there. <laughs> So, but the big thing is do not overcrowd courtyards, otherwise you feel like you're, you're hemmed in. Yeah, you do. I've got a courtyard. Now, mm -hmm. you mentioned kangaroo paw. Yep. I've just put two kangaroo paws into pots yep. because I had them in the garden bed and I don't know what happened. Oh. They didn't do too well. But will they be okay in a pot? They do <laughs> really well in a pot. Fantastic in a pot. So. And the couriers do what most Australian natives do really well in pots, kangaroo paws in particular. And the smaller the kangaroo paw, the shorter the lifespan, Tom. So Okay. So the All big right. tall well, ones. Mine, yeah, they're about up here. So oh, no, you're good. fine. They're going to yeah, go for a long yeah, time. Yeah, you'll have those for 35 <laughs> years, Tom. <laughs> Very good. Okay, Sabrina, I want to talk to you about success. Mm -hmm. As we said before, you were nominated for Australian of the Year. You say the name Sabrina and the word garden and everyone knows mm. who you are. You're a published author. You're smashing everything out in there <laughs> in the regional areas. What does success mean to you? Happiness, really. And I, you know, I thought about this quite a bit because I'm actually, a, uh, I am actually quite a humble person. And when people say they love me and they know me and I kind of go, um, but what it means is that I can actually generate information to make gardening more successful for people so that they listen to what I say and then they try and make that connection with nature themselves. So for me, it's an absolute honour to be involved in media and I actually take that quite seriously that I can get information out that actually helps the environment, makes people want to get out there, and even if they don't garden, makes them want to go out and look at a garden or go to a park or go for a walk through a, a natural bushland and appreciate it and want to actually keep it. So success for, for, for me is that I can actually influence people to care for the environment. What do you think that little eight-year-old girl out there that was, you know, in working hard with her siblings and her dad would have said if she knew the type of career that you have had? The brain that I had as an eight-year-old <laughs> could have gone anywhere, Tom. So if, at the age of eight, I would have believed it, I'm sure, because I was very much into make-believe and I used to play all sorts of characters when I was and I was young. I think what happens is that all that goes when you're, you know, I was so, um, I had no confidence whatsoever from about probably 12 to 30. So I never believed that, you know, in those, in those, that era that I could actually be successful in whatever it was and and um, so it when I was young certainly and that's what I love about kids and that's what I love about kids in the garden because 
you know, I'll say to them, where can we make a cubby house here? And they're, they're straight into it. You know, it's like, oh, let's cut that out and we can make a hole there and put a tunnel through there, and which is fantastic. And that's what I do for my granddaughter. You know, I say, let's cut a hole in that hedge and see what's on the <laughs> other side <laughs> because plants grow back. But um, I think for perhaps what people don't understand is I went through, you know, enormous years of self-doubt and and that I didn't think that I was ever good enough for particularly for peer groups that would perhaps judge me um, but of course now I don't care um, <laughs> because I I'm very happy with where I am in my life and you know I had a I had a really rough childhood but I think that was great in a way because it made me quite resilient and just you know if you think you're failing you go well give it another crack and off you go. Do you think the garden and, and nature has played a big part in that of getting you out of that self-doubt? Definitely without a doubt the beautiful thing about nature is that nature doesn't uh, judge you in any way it's just there and it's and it's you in your raw form because you're not being judged by anything. And because I've always felt that very deep connection with nature, whenever I'm in it, I'm, you know, peaceful and relaxed and, and just feel like I'm very much part of the planet, like every single cell in my body is part of where I am. So, and that's the thing that they're finding with uh, a lot of people with, with depression or anxiety, that when they take them outside into natural spaces, it's, it has a really good effect on them. So it's a very positive effect. And it's a living thing, isn't it? You know, these Absolutely. plants and, and vegetables, they're all living yep. and organic. And changing, and you can't control it all the time. That's the thing about nature. It puts human, the human species back in their box because there's no way you're going to be able to control nature. Absolutely. All right, time for our last question. Now this one comes from Debbie. Hi, Tom and Sabrina. My name's Debbie. I'm from Bunbury. Um, my question for you today, Sabrina, is um, regarding what appears to be midges in my pot plants. We went away on holidays for three and a half weeks and came home to an infestation in just about every pot inside the house. Um, this little fella here is one of those pots and he's looking a bit sad. Um, any clues on how I can get rid of them? I've tried lots of things, but nothing seems to work. Look forward to your answer. Thanks common problem particularly with indoor houseplants and of course everyone's getting indoor houseplants now so the thing about those is they're actually gnats g-n-a-t-s they love potatoes absolutely oh, really? love them so chuck so, a couple of potatoes in yeah you've got to cut them yeah. so that it's open you'll find all the gnats go to the potato i don't know what it's the starch i suppose so you put a few pieces of you know, chunks about that big um, in your, around your pot. And then you just pick the potatoes up every morning and bin them. And if you do that consecutively for two weeks, get rid of all your gnats. Amazing. There you go, Debbie. Uh, now, Sabrina, just before we wrap up, we're gonna do some final tips for gardeners, whether mm. they're doing a home garden, whether they want to get their kids more involved. What's the best tips or best ways that people can start? Observe, 
before you do anything in a garden, what you need to do is in the morning, go outside, sit with your cup of coffee and just look. Don't do anything. Just look, think where the sun goes at different times of the year, how you're going to utilise that space. Then go out in the afternoon with a glass of wine, perhaps, if that's, your, if that's what, I, what I do. Um, and then get a piece of paper and just start scribbling. So the thing that people don't realise is gardening is all about fiddling. You just constantly fiddle with it until you get it how you want it. So take a piece of paper out, relax, glass of wine, another cup of tea if you wish, and um, just start looking at what you're going to, how you're going to utilise that space. If you've got kids, involve the kids in the design of it. Ask them what they'll want. They'll want a water slide, a skate park, all the stuff that's completely impossible and you'll never be able to give them. But they actually have a sense of being involved in the whole design of it. If you are going to grow veggies, then you know you need full sun and you have to remember veggies are high maintenance. It's not something that you stick in and forget because they'll die. Um, the other big thing is remember that you're part of a bigger environment. So you are part of nature and everything that used to be in that area before you built your house no longer has a home. So create a home for all the other organisms that live in our cities. You want your garden to be alive and you want to be able to go out and go, oh, look at that little willy wagtail eating all my slaters. Go for it, you good thing. Well, Sabrina, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you here for Tom's Talk Time today. Thank you very much. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of Tom's Talk Time. You can find Sabrina by visiting her website at sabrinahan.com.au. Find me at Tom's Talk Time on Facebook and anywhere you get your podcasting from. See you next time.